0: the anniversary of my conversion on the 14th of this month, back in 2000, and since then I've um, spent time every holiday, um, every vacation time, reading through this book. It's a book you can read through. If you're a slower reader like me, it'll probably take about two and a half hours. It's about the time you'd spend watching a movie, and it'd be time very well spent if you want to do that sometime this week, one sitting, or you can spread it out, but it'll give you a great insight into the, the path we're going to be taking over the next 25 weeks as we look at this great book, The Acts of the Apostles. And Luke, uh, who we'll talk a little bit about in a minute, has done us a favour this morning because in the reading you just heard in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, I think we get probably, if he had to choose one, the kind of meta-theme verse for the whole book. And so I want us to look at this, Acts 1, 8. This is what he says, quoting Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That sets up for us, really, the next 25 weeks, I think. Uh, as we open up this book of Acts, there's going to be a lot of things that happen. There are going to be a lot of interesting occurrences. There are going to be a lot of people that we're introduced to, but this theme is going to run well. That Jesus' purpose in sending his spirit after he he ascended to the right hand of God would be that ordinary Christians would be empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness to the lordship of Jesus. That's what uh, Jesus instituted in this book and that's what the church is all about to this day. And so, again, God willing, I hope that we as a church would see ourselves, this community, plugged into salvation history that we read about in the book of Acts that's continued to this day and to to which we are very much a part of. This book is all about witnessing to the Lordship of Jesus. So with that in mind, I'm going to pray for us now and ask for God's help as we open up this book. If you haven't kept your Bible open, keep it open at Acts chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 1 in just a minute. But let me pray for us as we start. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this incredible book, The Acts of the Apostles. We thank you for your servant Luke who recorded this history for our benefit. And we pray that over the next 25 weeks, you would be faithful in filling us with your spirit so that we might witness to the lordship of Jesus. And I pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. I want to start us off with a quote before we get to the text of the passage. One of my favourite quotes from the great Martin Luther, uh, one of the great spearheads of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, and this is what he said. Remember, even secular historians will say that this man, Martin Luther, stands out as one of the greatest forces in world history, okay? And this is what he says. I simply taught, preached, And wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And then while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that uh, never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing, the word did it all. That's his own summation of his incredible life and work that the word of God did it all. That yes, he was used as a means of God to accomplish great things, but it was the word of God, by the power of God, that did so much for the cause of God in this world. And I think by the time we get to Christmas, we will look back over the past 25 weeks and say, the same is true in the book of Acts. The word of God fueled by the spirit of God did it all. The incredible things that we'll read about, the amazing stories that sometimes read like an adventure novel, the lives that change, the miracles that are witnessed, all of them are not done by these men and women who will be introduced to, though their lives are fascinating. They were done by the Spirit of God through the Word of God. And so I invite you now, take up your Bible. We're going to go to chapter 1. And verse 1 to 3, I'm just going to read a little bit and talk a little bit and see what God has for us, okay? So chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his suffering... He presented himself to them and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So here we have an introduction both to the author and to the recipient of this history. First of all, we get introduced to Luke. Now, Luke is not named in in this historical account, nor is he named in his gospel, but we know from history that he is the author, Luke the Physician, uh, disciple of Jesus um, after Jesus' death and resurrection. And, and Luke is a man who we're told in, uh, I think it's Colossians chapter 4, that he's a physician, but he's also a masterful historian. In fact, uh, a fellow historian, Walter Ramsey. Sir Walter Ramsey, when he was investigating the history that Luke wrote, he, he started out as a sceptic, uh, doubting the historicity of the Bible. But after his study, he said this, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect to its trustworthiness. And Luke is a an historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements trustworthy. This author should be placed along with the very greatest of historians. This is... Luke and he wrote for us a, a history of Jesus, both his life, his death, his resurrection and then of the early church. We call it the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Is, it's essentially one book in two parts. And so you might have read through Luke's Gospel and, uh, and now we've come to the sequel, the Acts of the apostles, and he has written this in the first place. Yes, to us today, but in the first place to a man named Theophilus. We don't know exactly who this man is. His his name in the Greek means um, "loved of God," and so. Um, This could be a pseudonym for someone. It could be someone who is investigating Christianity, maybe is curious about Christianity but doesn't want to be known to be investigating Christianity because at the time it was a dangerous thing to be looking into the faith of the Christians. And so Luke might be sort of using a pseudonym, a fake name, loved of God, so not to reveal who he is. But he's probably, we think, maybe a wealthy benefactor who's sponsoring Luke's historical account sponsoring him to be able to go around and ask investigative questions and write all of this down, all of which costs a lot of money, especially in the day. Uh, It could be that. Others have suggested that he might be a lawyer defending Paul in Rome. We see at the end of this book in in the book of Acts that Paul is imprisoned and uh, about to undergo a trial. It might be that he's the lawyer who's defending him and he's asked Luke to put together an account of Jesus and the early church in order to defend Paul, that's another idea. The the truth is we don't really know, um, but the point is that Luke has written this account to explain with historical accuracy the life of Jesus in his gospel and then the beginnings of the early church in the book of Acts. And so we should come to this with great um, assurance of the historicity of what Luke has written. Some people over the years have tried to uh, Tried to suggest that, that that Christianity and that the Bible in particular is just a, a bunch of myths. Uh, someone I love very much just this past week told that to me. Said, you know, it's, all this is just made up anyway. Uh, C.S. Lewis, a writer that you might know, um, you might know him as a a writer of children's stories, the Chronicles of Narnia and uh, others. Actually, most of his life was spent studying medieval literature and specifically mythology. And he said in response to critics who levelled this um, accusation of of mythological writing, he said, I know mythology. Few people in the world knew it better. He was a don of both Cambridge and Oxford universities. He said, I know mythology, and there isn't a scrap of mythology in what I read in the New Testament. What we read in the Acts of the Apostles is historical narrative, and so I want you to trust what we read as being the truth as God has revealed it to us through his servant Luke. And he says, very importantly, in the first verse, if we can just pull up the Luke uh, 1-1 again... He says to Theophilus that in my former book, that is the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach, right? And the implication for the, the Acts of the Apostles is that this is the sequel. This is the continuing story. Luke is now writing for, Theoph- for Theophilus all that Jesus continued to do and to teach, You might say, well, Jesus is dead now. No, Jesus is not dead. Jesus is risen. Jesus is alive. And so this book of Acts is simply the continuation of what the risen, reigning Lord Jesus is doing and teaching through his apostles, through the early church. And some have suggested that you can break down the book of Acts into two parts equally chapter 1 to 12 and then 13 to 28 and the first half is sort of about Peter and the second half is sort of about Paul or, or another division is um, Luke d- doing a history of the church up to ver- uh, chapter 15 where he's just giving us the sort of eyewitnesses accounts and then he turns to start talking about we this is where Luke joins the journey with Paul from chapter 16 onwards it's really not important how you break it down we're going to break it down over 25 weeks And I trust that God is going to teach us a lot, not only about the early church, but about what that means for us as the church in 2016 in Caroline Springs here today, all right? So that's where we're heading. We're going to see all that Jesus has continued to do and to teach through the early church. So let's keep going. Verse 4 to 8, let's read that. On one occasion, Luke writes... While he was eating with them, this is Jesus, gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. There's that key verse for us again. Verse 8. Now, as I said, since I was converted 16 years ago, this is the book that I've read most often. This is the book that I've, I've read um, in one sitting more often than any other. And the reason I love it so much is, particularly when I first became a Christian, I found most of the Bible quite boring, but this seemed like an adventure novel. There's shipwrecks and there's riots and there's miracles and like there's crazy stuff that happens in this book. But I want to say to us from the uh, outset as we go into this series together, while all of that stuff is fascinating and interesting and sometimes perplexing, it's not the main point of this book. The main point of this book and what God, I think, wants to say to us through this, and I trust that this is something that God has revealed to me and, and wants me to emphasize throughout this series, is that he wants us to know that this book Is about ordinary Christians empowered by the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. You see this in verse 7 and 8. All right, so just back up one. Jesus says to them when they're inquiring about restoring the kingdom, he says, it's not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority. He puts them back in their place a little bit. And these are the disciples of Jesus. These are the apostles who go on to do these miraculous things. Jesus puts them in their place. Why? Because they're ordinary men. We're going to see some amazing things that happen in this book. We need to be reminded over and over again, these are ordinary men and women. You're going to see an incident where some pagans see the power that Paul possesses by by the power of the Spirit working through him and they fall down and they want to worship him and Barnabas. They think they're gods and they're they're like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. We're ordinary men. This book is about ordinary people. Verse 8, let's click over. Who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness to the Lordship of Jesus throughout the earth. This is how we're connected to these events, to this book, to these people, to this time, that we are continuing what God started. Ordinary people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. And if Caroline Springs isn't the ends of the earth, then I don't know what is. Maybe Tasmania goes one step further, right? But we're part of this ongoing story. So let's just have that in mind. Let's let's have that as the filter by which we see all of these things. Let Let us resist the temptation to somehow pedestal these men and women and the miraculous things that they do and rather remember ordinary people empowered by God's Holy Spirit to witness to the lordship of Jesus. He's the focus of this book. He's the hero of this book. He's the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you. Verse 9 to 11 says this. This is the point of the ascension of Jesus. This is what we need to know. Jesus is on the throne. The reason I think that Luke makes a point of establishing this at the beginning is that for the rest of the book, no matter what happens, the next 28 chapters, the next 25 weeks, no matter what happens, we need to know Jesus is on the throne. Through shipwrecks and riots and miracles and conversions, Jesus is on the throne. He's the object of our worship. He's the focus of our attention. We don't get distracted by peripheral things. We focus on Jesus, the Lord Jesus, who sits on the throne. The fact that he was raised from the dead and then ascended into heaven is the vindication of all that he said about himself, right? Jesus reveals himself as God. Then he's killed. And everyone's demoralized. The disciples are completely heartbroken. The whole movement collapses. And many today, my friends who are Muslims, will point to this and say, see, your God is weak. He died. To which we reply, yes, he died. And then he was raised. And then he ascended to the right hand of God and is ruling and reigning over all things. As it will say later in the book of Acts, there was a time when he... Passed over those who refused to bend the knee. But now he commands all people everywhere, Muslims and Christians alike, to confess that he is Lord. There is no other name by which men can be saved. Why? Because Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. He is the ascended Lord, God, King and Christ. So I wonder if you claim this truth for yourself. Certainly it was what kept the apostles going through thick and thin. You're going to see at points these guys get beaten viciously, thrown out of a city, and then they turn around, come back in rejoicing and preaching the gospel. Why? Because they're no longer demoralized with a dead leader. They know that he's ruling and reigning at the right hand of God. They saw him ascend to heaven. So how does this play out in your life? In your shipwrecks, in your riots, in your beatings, in your imprisonments? Do you remember, first and foremost, in all circumstances, Jesus is the ascended Lord. He is ruling and reigning over all things. Nothing surprises him. I left here last night at about midnight. I was uh, just kind of rehashing what I wanted to say and um, I left to go home because I had received a message from Renee that just said, I think I'm going to die migraine. And so I just bolted home and just found her in bits. Just, just like, some of you know what this is like, right? And she gets migraines kind of fairly regularly, but this was like a super migraine, right? And, and she... And, and she particularly because she was a paramedic, she's like her greatest fear is ever having to go to the hospital. She feels like she knows everyone there at the emergency room and somehow she'd be embarrassed to go, right? So she never says this, but she said to me, I think I might need to go to the hospital. This is just... And in the end, we just prayed and, she, and we got some relief. But during that time, just having my nose in this book beforehand, I was reminded in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this... Excruciating pain, in the midst of the powerlessness, knowing that I can't just drop a handkerchief on her and heal her, in the midst of all of this, I remember Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is on the throne. With that in mind, that at the forefront of our minds interpreting all that we read, let's carry on, verse 15 to 22. You guys staying with me? I feel like you are. Praise the Lord. All right. Verse 15, in those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and he said, Brothers and sisters, the scripture had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. You can hear the heartbreak in his voice, It's betrayal. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong. His body burst open and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us. Beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they've got this problem. Judas was a disciple. Judas was one of them. Judas shared in their ministry. And now Judas is dead. He died a betrayer treacherous traitor now good thing to remember again and this reinstates the point, reaffirms the point who's on the throne Jesus is, who is surprised by what Jesus, uh, Judas has done the disciples are they thought Judas was just one of those, he, was the, he played in the music every week, he preached from now and then, he was the treasurer we trusted him with the money right, he was, he was that guy and now he's dead, traitor killed himself. Jesus is on the throne. God is sovereign over all things. This has not surprised him. Peter says, this has so very much not surprised God that the Psalms, written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, spoke about this, right? God wasn't surprised. But now they need to replace him. And so they gather the disciples together and as we see, they're going to choose a couple of people as candidates for the role of apostle. I just want you to notice before we move on to verse 23, for one of these must become a witness. There's that word again. I want you to have that sort of in your mind. Just have a little bell go off whenever you hear this word witness. Because my, well it's not mine, I believe it's the book meta theme for us is that Christians are ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Here's another couple of witnesses coming up. Verse 23. So they nominated two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justice. It's kind of confusing. I don't know why I need three names, but there you go. And Matthias, keeping it simple. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Jesus is on the throne. You know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots and the lot fell into Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Let me just um, step out of this just for a moment and talk about something that we might, might be good for us to understand as we try and interpret this book together as God's community because There have been sort of fights over the years between factions. Those who believe that the book of Acts is prescriptive, that what happens in it should prescribe what happens for us as Christians today. And then those who say, no, 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 it's descriptive. It's just Luke's account of what did happen. It doesn't necessarily prescribe what should happen today. And, And my view is, and I hope you agree, is that it's both at different points. That there are things in the book of Acts that are prescriptive for us. I'm saying chapter 1, verse 8 is prescriptive for us as Christians. That Jesus wants to fill us with his spirit so that we would be witnesses to his lordship to the ends of the earth. Right? That's a prescription for us as Christians, as a church. Other, other episodes are descriptive. At the very end of the book, you see Paul gets bitten by a snake. He doesn't do anything about it and he doesn't die. If you get bitten by a snake... That's not a prescription for how you should respond to it, all right? Get to the hospital. In this instance, the way that they choose the next apostle, they cast lots. Now, they're standing on solid ground. I think it's Proverbs 16-something says that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The lot is a, a dice, right? You can throw the dice. Every decision, every number that comes up is from the Lord. So they trust that, and they cast lots, and they believe the man that they choose Uh, through the casting of lots or that the the lot chooses Matthias is the man that God wants this is not how we choose leaders today in the church and it's actually not how they chose leaders after this point for the rest of the New Testament so this is descriptive not prescriptive Uh, you shouldn't be overwhelmed by this but you should as you read through the book of Acts I'll be asking this question and you should as well ask the Spirit of God to reveal to you, is this something that is prescriptive that we should be doing, perhaps that I'm not doing, perhaps that I don't want to do, or is this something that is descriptive that might inform what we do but isn't a commandment or a prescription for how we should behave? I just wanted to cover that, all right, because that's an important key to the interpretation of this book for us. So let's carry on. We're going to get into chapter 2 and... um, and just for a little bit, because this whole section, the chapter divisions aren't very helpful, okay? Um, this whole section, 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 13, is the preparation for what's going to happen next, the preparation for the witnessing that goes on for the rest of the book. So let's just get to the end of this little section, 2 verse 13, and then we'll be prepared for the next 24 weeks, okay? So let's read verse, uh, chapter 2 verse 1 to 3. When the day of Pentecost came, They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. So this is the great Pentecost event. Pentecost didn't start at this point. It's a festival that had been celebrated over the years and actually in in sort of different ways through the history of the people of Israel. But it's at that point that God fulfills his promise to send his spirit to empower the church to witness to the lordship of Jesus. So Luke has recorded this before in his gospel and the other gospel writers will mention as well where Jesus says this helper is coming. This this encourager is coming. This comforter is coming. This spirit is coming who's going to empower you for ministry. John baptised with water, but Jesus baptises with the fire of the spirit. It was promised in Old Testament prophecies, one of which Peter is going to quote in next week's passage. This is the fulfilment of that promise. God sends his spirit. And so because it's this this marker that God is laying down in salvation history. Because in the past, people have had the Spirit, people have been filled with the Spirit. But only from this point on will every believer be indwelled with, baptized with the Holy Spirit. So God's laying down this marker that changes the game, and He He He, he sends with it the attendant sort of signs that this is a big deal. Wind, fire. Wind, fire. So it's interesting to note that the word spirit in, in the Greek is pneuma, pneuma, silent P. It's where we get a pneumatic tyre, right? Pneuma, which means wind. And so this perhaps would have made more sense to people in, for Luke's audience, written in excellent Greek, by the way, um, that the wind of the spirit attends this great marker that God is laying down as he fills his people with the Spirit. We shouldn't read anything into it too literally because I think Luke particularly says that it seemed to be a wind and it seemed to be fire. Fire, again, was was sort of an imagery used of God himself all through the Old Testament, a consuming fire. And so in your mind's eye, as you look at this event in history, you can't actually pin it down perfectly because even Luke, who is, uh, who is interviewing the eyewitnesses of this, kind of uses metaphor to make his point. We have to do that when we come across supernatural things. When I became a Christian all those years ago, July 14th, 2000, that Experience of becoming to faith was accompanied by supernatural events that I can't explain under any other terms than supernatural. And even as I try to describe them to people, I'm forced to use metaphors because what happened wasn't natural. So maybe the whole place was shaken with wind, and maybe fire kind of came down and rested on people's heads, or maybe it was just a bit like that, and that's all I can, it's a poetic language that I have at my disposal to describe this incredible event. Whatever the case, God is laying down a marker in salvation history. All people who believe in Jesus will be baptised with the Holy Spirit and empowered to witness to the lordship of Jesus. So the question for you this morning is, have you been empowered for this work that God has called you to? Have you been baptised in the Holy Spirit? By the way, that's an interchangeable language. Baptised in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. Some might want to make those separate events. I believe they're the same thing. That every believer is baptised, filled. Just think about what baptised means. It just means immersed. So it's, it's filled, it's saturated, it's immersed with the Holy Spirit and empowered to witness to the Lordship of Jesus? Have you been empowered? If not, why not? It's important to note as well that this is not a once-off event. This is a continual feeling that we need to undergo to empower us to be witnesses of the Lord Jesus. So don't, like, yeah, 16 years ago I was filled with the Spirit and been good as gold since then. No, it leaks it leaks out of me through every hole that sin bores into me, right? Or out of me. So we need to be praying all the time. Paul used this language in his epistles. An ongoing filling of the Spirit will empower us to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus. And not just witnesses, but disciples. So again, let us, yes, note, wow, this is an incredible occurrence There's wind and there's fire and it's getting crazy and there's tongues. But let's not be distracted from the central theme. Here, God is laying down a marker in salvation history and empowering his church from then until now to be witnesses to the lordship of Jesus. Let's see how it plays out. Verse 4 to 11. We'll get an example. All of them, 120 people, right? 120 disciples. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Remember, this is all the Spirit's work. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then, how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, and Issyrene, visitors from Rome, right? All these people, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed. And perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Somehow, have made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. So here is this event. God is laying down a marker. Salvation history is taking a turn. All people who trust in the Lord Jesus will be empowered by his spirit, filled, baptized, to be witnesses to the lordship of Jesus. And there are going to be these attendant events that sort of authenticate what God is doing. This is not just too much wine. This is actually a cataclysmic event that God is doing to authenticate the Lordship of Jesus. So in verse 4, they're filled with the Holy Spirit and in verse 11, they witness to the Lordship of Jesus, the wonders of God. It happens from the first instant, right? There's no gap, not filled with the Spirit then go to seminary for five years and then be a candidate for ministry for another couple of years and then we might let you out on the, no, it's just like filled with the spirit, witness to the wonders of God and it's exactly the same for you here this morning, Christian believer. I'm gonna pray at the end of this. I'm gonna ask, just give you a heads up, I'm gonna ask everyone who wants to be filled with the spirit to stand up and we're gonna ask God to fill us with the spirit. This won't be some kind of magic act. I've got nothing up my sleeve. I've got no power within myself. It's as the Spirit enables, we just read. But God has promised to fill his disciples with his Spirit to empower them for the work of his mission in the world. And so we know God keeps all of his promises and so we'll trust that he'll do that. Not just today. You're probably going to need to do this tomorrow morning before work as well. So I want to talk, just at the end, just to finish this off, I want to talk a little bit about what it means for us to be witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus, all right? Because we've established, and you, by all means, give me evidence to suggest I'm wrong in this, but I'm, I'm saying this is the meta theme of this book. We don't want to narrow it down into one theme because Luke doesn't do that, but I'm saying this should be our guide as we go through the book that this is all about a history of God empowering ordinary people to be witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, that, that word witness is interesting, right? Witness. I'm very interested in witnesses at the moment. It's not because uh, I'm not like Linda, I'm not a, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I am a father and I've got two kids at the moment who have just come into a season of life where they do a lot of playtime together without our supervision. All right, so up until this point, we've always had someone young enough that we have to be there. Now, like this morning, Renee and I were just so annihilated by the, the night of um, migraine and stuff that the kids got up, and normally I, I go with them and go downstairs, and I, we just said, "Can you just, you guys, just go and play?" All right? and and within thirty seconds, the court the court was open. Right, there was crying and there was accusations and 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 and. I don't know, Judah had hit India and she had pushed, or something, something had happened, I was a little bit foggy, but I'm finding myself more and more needing witnesses to judge the uh, occurrences that happen in my family. Right? If, if, if I've got a witness, I'm on much sturdier ground than trusting two little liars, all right, and, um, and they're liars because they're humans, you are too, all right. So um, and, and so if I, can get, if I can get video surveillance of some kind, that's the best thing. If there's someone else in the house, you, know, you get the idea. So that's not exactly what we're talking about, though. Yes, the apostles were technically witnesses of Jesus' ministry and his resurrection and his ascension. We are not, but we are still called to be Witnesses, and we're called to give testimony to what we know and believe to be true about Jesus. Are you ready to give testimony to what you know and believe about the risen Lord Jesus? If you're ready, then you're a witness. Even if you're not ready and you know, then you're a witness. It's interesting that the Greek word for... And just let me geek out on this, all right? I never talk about Greek words and stuff in this congregation, but I feel like this is important, right? The, the, the word witness that we have here, it's from the, the Greek word, ancient Koine Greek word, martyreo, martyreo, all right? And, and that's where we get the word martyr. A martyr is a witness to the lordship of Jesus. We have shifted the meaning and, in fact, we have adulterated it in some ways when we call or others call suicide bombers martyrs for the cause of Islam than nothing of the sort. To be a martyr is a Christian term referring to those who would witness to the Lordship of Jesus. It's not, about being, it's not about killing others for your faith or being killed for your faith. It's about being willing to die as you witness to the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus. Witnesses in Luke's day happened to be killed very often for being witnesses. We're going to see the first martyr, the first witness, Stephen, being killed in the coming weeks. He witnessed to the Lordship of Jesus and he was killed because he was a witness. He was martyred because he was a martyr. 11 out of 12 of the disciples, we're told, were martyred for being witnesses. And in some parts of the world today, people are still killed for being witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. And so what is it going to take? What miracle of God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, is it going to take to turn this community of believers into money? What is it going to take for God to raise up within this church believers in the Lordship of Jesus who are willing to witness to that fact? some of whom may be called to go to places in the world where you are martyred for being a martyr. Others who will live out their days, as we're told the Apostle John did, continuing to be a witness, to be a martyr to the Lord Jesus. If that's not what we yearn for in this community, if that's not what our expectation is that God will do through us, then I vote, I know this isn't a voting church, but I vote that we give up now. Because I don't need to be here at 12 o'clock on a Saturday night trying to throw something together in the midst of tumult and tribulation at home to entertain a bunch of people on a Sunday morning. No, we exist to be a community of people helping people make all of life all about who? Jesus. That means we're martyrs. That means we're witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus. Next week, we're going to answer the question that the Jews have just asked. We're going to answer this question. They are perplexed, and rightly so. This is (laughs) is kind of crazy what's going on. All these different languages, all this wind and fire and stuff that's going on. Some of them are scoffing. They've had too much wine. They've been getting into it, right? Peter's going to stand up. And Peter is going to be transformed from the man who denied Jesus three times to the man who will witness to the Lord Jesus even to his death. And he's going to explain to us and to them what this is all about. But that's next week. So between now and then, I'm going to be praying that we as a church would be filled by the Holy Spirit to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. Now, I'm going to pray now, as I said. And I don't know about you, but I I feel empty. I feel very ordinary. I feel limited. I feel broken. I'm aware of my own sin, my own shortcomings. And the gap between my competencies and God's plan in salvation history is so great that either I have to despair or throw myself on his mercy and ask for his help. So if you would like to ask for God's help, if you would like to be filled with the Spirit and empowered for the work of witnessing to the risen Lord Jesus, then I'm going to ask you to stand up. We don't do this very often, but I think there's something in it. There's something in the act of standing, of laying down a marker, of saying this is what I want. God, would you do this according to your mercy? Let me pray for us all now. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we believe that your great plan for this world is to work through ordinary people empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. We believe that there is no other name under heaven which, with which men and women can be saved. We believe that those who call on the name of Jesus will be saved and so filled with the Spirit that they might be witnesses as well. So we do pray throughout the next 25 weeks that people would would be saved, that they would call on that name, that they would bend the knee to that Lord, that people would be saved and converted and changed for eternity. And I pray for my brothers and sisters now. I pray for those who have stood To say, yes, I want to be empowered by the Spirit to witness to the Lordship of Jesus. I pray for myself in that number, Lord, that you would fill us now with your Spirit. Lord Jesus, you've promised that you would do this. You said to us, even evil fathers know how to give good gifts. How much more will my Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So we ask now for your holy spirit. We ask that we would be filled, baptized, empowered with your spirit for the work of ministry that you have called us to. We stand in that long line of disciples of the Lord Jesus who you are calling through the ages to be witnesses, to be martyrs to the lordship of Christ. And so we ask now, Lord, not only that you would fill us now, but that you continually fill us for our ongoing work of ministry, to the day that we're taken home, to the day that Jesus returns. Whatever our future holds, Lord, we know that you are on the throne, ruling and reigning over all things. So use us, use us, ordinary to be witnesses to the extraordinary, risen Lord Jesus. For we pray it in his name. Amen. Thanks, guys. You can take a seat. I want you to take a seat just for a minute. Um, You guys in the band can come up and um, we're going to respond to God's word revealed to us by praising him uh, with our own words. But just for a minute before we do that, I want you uh, to pray for us. Okay, so um, pray for this church. Pray for those of us who will be preaching through this book over the next 25 weeks. Pray for those who will be hearing this book taught, perhaps for the first time. Um, Pray for those who will be ministered to over the internet. It just blows my mind how many people listen to these sermons. It's it's kind of mind-blowing, but it's all done by the power of the Spirit for God's own ends. So would you do that for me, just for a minute? Uh, Either pray in your family groups um, or, or whatever, pray individually, but pray that this series would bless people and bring glory to the risen Lord Jesus.